0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome to the latest LRB podcast about poetry, drawing on the rich archive of reviews and essays on British and American poets published over the years in the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach English at the University of Oxford, and I'm talking to Mark Ford, who is a poet and also a professor of English at University College London. And our subject today is the American poet, wallace stevens mark i described him there in shorthand as an american poet and the nationality of any poet is interesting to know about but for stevens it seems to me his americanness is particularly key to the kind of writer he is
2: yes he was uh, in that extraordinary generation of poets born between sort of 1879 when he was born and 1900 Oh, 1899, when Hart Crane was born, that really created a renaissance in American poetry, or, or or a kind of, it was the golden era of American poetry, as well as Wallace Stevens, there was Marianne Moore, William Carlos Williams, uh, T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, who went off to Europe, and were obviously uh, rather attacked for doing so by the American modernists who stayed behind, and Hart Crane as well. So, Stevens, though, in many ways, a rather remote figure who wasn't exactly always a figure on the literary scene in the ways in which someone like um, Crane was or Moore was who edited The Dial. Um, Stevens um, worked most of his life as a lawyer, well, all all his adult life pretty much as a lawyer, but he did belong to this extraordinary generation that transformed American poetry. If you think of the 19th century, all you've got is Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson are the poets that we read. But there were other poets who sold in truckloads like Longfellow, for instance.
1: Lowell. Uh, yes, Old Lowell. Yes. <laughs> uh, exactly, James Russell Lowell.
2: So there was, a, it was an odd way in which this golden generation of poets whom we read now, uh, they discover, America discovered its great poets. At the moment, those poets didn't lost their audience, mm-hmm. that people didn't buy modernist poetry in the way in which they bought kind of uh, Longfellow or Lowell. But it was and is now the most canonical poetry uh, in the American um, uh, tradition And Stevens, although a, a fairly oblique figure in various ways, or always someone who kept himself at an angle to the kind of literary shakers, the literary world itself, um, is probably the most written about poet uh, of that period, along with Ezra Pound, in terms of the shelves and shelves of secondary material about him.
1: Perhaps it would be a good idea to just begin by sketching out his first years up to the the time of the publication of his of his first collection, which is called Harmonium, which we'll come on to in a moment. So he, he goes to Harvard, he trains as a lawyer, and then he has a period in in New York. And I know that you think the New York period is something which is particularly important in in thinking about how Wallace Stevens came to be Wallace Stevens.
2: Uh, yes, uh, it's, it's worth mentioning that his father was a lawyer as well, and uh, he uh, grew up in in Reading in Pennsylvania in a fairly sort of traditional uh, family and. Uh, he went to Harvard and he thought he'd like to, he, he tried to become a journalist uh, and he famously covered Stephen Crane's funeral and there was almost no one there. <laughs> and he thought, this is a weird life being a writer. <laughs> um, but he did ask his father if he would subsidize his career as a kind of uh, as a writer of poetry. He wrote he published in The Harvard Advocate, uh, as, of course, did um, T.S. Eliot. And his father said, no, I will not give you this money. I suggest you become a lawyer. And Stevens, who was rather coveted a bohemian life a little bit, realized that he wouldn't actually be able to cope with a bohemian life. But the early Stevens is a still a, a dandy figure. If you see pictures of him and the way he dressed, that there is a kind of dandyish aspect to him, which again sort of connects him with Eliot, who had his fascination with the Laforgian dandy
1: the centre parting and, and other markers of the of the young bohemian at Harvard in those days.
2: Yeah, was it Michael Hoffman who says he looks a dead ringer for Oscar Wilde?
1: Uh, yes, that's a bit generous, I think, but yes, uh, along the line anyway. Okay, so we're still some way away, aren't we, from his first publication because he doesn't actually publish his first book of poems until he's 44, is that right?
2: Well, I think um, uh, Stevens is, is one of those completely inexplicable, to me, kind of um, sudden poetic developments and in, in that, again, I think he's quite similar to Walt Whitman, Walt Whitman suddenly starts writing Song of Myself in his kind of 30s. Um, And Stevens did sort of write what he thought of as trifles, kind of rather uh, decadent, uh, whimsical, um, trifling pieces, which he wrote some of them for Elsie to kind of uh, as a kind of part of his elaborate and um, rather long winded courtship of her. But no, he doesn't publish Harmonium until he's 44, um, and that really is quite late. But he starts writing the great poems um, Sunday Morning, Peter Quince of the Clavier, sort of 1914, 1915. Uh, and he lived in New York trying to work as a lawyer, and but not very successfully at first. He talks in his diary of actually going without food sometimes. So there is this image of the later Stevens when he was a successful lawyer with the uh, Hartford uh, Insurance and Indemnity Company. Being very rich, but actually Stevens in his twenties was quite poor.
1: Now you mentioned Elsie uh, because you've published on on the subject in in the London Review of Books that you think th- the marriage to Elsie Moll, which happens in 1909, was in a in a rather kind of paradoxical way the thing that established him as the poet that he was to become. Can you say a bit more about that?
2: Yes, he met Elsie in 1904 on a trip back to Reading in Pennsylvania, where he grew up, and um, Elsie was much less well-educated. She left school at 16. Uh, she was very beautiful. Uh, in fact, if you had a dime uh, in the 1920s, it would have been Elsie's profile was on the dime that she was kind of used uh, by the sc- by the sculptor <laughs> who made the dime. She was, she was very beautiful. You, uh, and she was quite good at the piano. It was a strange courtship. Um, yes, I reviewed all the letters that Stevens wrote to her. And they are peculiar in that they present... Stevens as a bit like somebody courting little Nell. Mm. Uh, it's a very Victorian notion of kind of of their relationship. For someone so sophisticated and intelligent, it seems a very unintelligent assessment of uh, Elsie that he makes in this courtship and because she was from the wrong side of the tracks as well, there was uh Stevens' parents would never speak to him after they did eventually marry in 1909. So uh he was effectively ostracized by both father and mother because of marrying Elsie. So, in that sense, it was a bold thing to do, but the marriage wasn't a happy one.
1: No, you talk about, you know, many years of marital discord, um, and she doesn't seem to have had any particular attunement or sympathy with his life as a poet, or with his poetry, indeed.
0: Well,
2: he he courted her by writing her these, um, as she thought of them, personal, intimate poems. One of the reasons that she... Uh, she felt very betrayed when he published those poems. Uh, his, his daughter, their daughter, Holly Stevens, writes about this. So that these personal poems, which she thought of as a kind of part of his courtship and and were hers, as a kind of... They're not very intimate in any kind of explicit way. But when he published them, she took that as a great betrayal. And she never afterwards took any pride in the fact that he ended up being one of the most um, famous and and well-respected poets of his age. Um, And she later said after he died, Mr. Stevens's poetic fame was of no interest to me, something along those lines. So she wasn't encouraging in saying, go on, Wallace, write another good poem. But I think she was encouraging in the extent to which marriage to her disappointed Stevens and was the catalyst for... Uh, the poems that went into harmonium and many of them can be seen to be about sexual despair in some ways that he had imagined a life of all fairy, I think he puts it in one of his letters and it didn't end up like that she was recalcitrant, she was bored a lot of the time, she was at home in the house in the flat in New York uh, he used to go into the cupboard <laughs> and recite his poems apparently and she was known for slamming doors <laughs> her right. neighbours remember the slamming doors
1: so the disappointment of the marriage um, has by a, a kind of reaction effect uh, an extraordinarily empowering influence upon upon Stevens's verse and he starts writing poems which then will later become collected in a harmonium, this 1923 volume, which are pretty much unlike anything else that you'd come across. I mean, there are. how would you characterize the harmonium manner or the harmonium idiom? It's very idiosyncratic, isn't it?
2: It is utterly original. It's worth remembering that while in New York, Stevens, though not drawn to avant-garde circles, did hang out with Walter Ahrensberg and Mina Loy and Marcel Duchamp and William Carlos Williams, who later became a friend. That's in inverted commas. Uh, They weren't, Stevens wasn't that close, I don't think, to to, to many people. But he did hang out in avant-garde circles and was drawn to the avant-garde and to the experimental. Um, So although, I mean, there's an occasion when they went to Walter Ahrensberg's studio and he was invited to recite his poetry (laughs) and he got up to read and they asked uh, Elsie what she thought of his poetry. And she said, I like Mr. Stevens's poetry when it's not affected but most of his poetry is affected or something along those lines. So, again, not much encouragement from home. But the, 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 the poems in Harmonium, which many people think are his most treasured poems, um, poems like The Snowman, The Emperor of Ice Cream, Sunday Morning, um, Anecdote of the Jar and so on, ones which are in every anthology, uh, were written either in New York, sort of 1915 to 1917, or 1917 to 1922, um, and the volume came out the following year, the year... Inauspiciously for Stevens after the wasteland
1: yes, um, Hoffman says in the excellent piece in the LRB that w- we mentioned already that harmonium seems to s- spring out of Stevens like Athena from the head of zeus there 's something absolutely sort of magical and and kind of unprecedented but wholly complete and and finished about this as a, um, you know, as, as a first appearance on the literary scene, and you mentioned the snowman there I mean maybe we could we could look at that it 's one of the earlier poems in the, in, the way, in the way that Harmonium is organized as a volume. Would you like to read it? Just? Yes.
2: Uh, the Snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow, and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice, the spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun, and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind, in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place, for the listener who listens in the snow, and, nothing himself, beholds nothing that is not there, and the nothing that is.
0: Thanks for listening to this extract from Series 1 of Modernish Poets. To listen to the full series and to all our other close reading series, sign up at lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link below. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.